they'll be like, okay, you know, mortgage is $1,000, rents $1,200, my cash flow is $200. And you're like, no, no, (laughs) no. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Sarah King from Nerd's Guide to Fi. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Well, if you listened to the last episode, you know I picked up my new F-150, which was pretty awesome, and got that down to Mississippi. And while I was down here, we decided... You know what? Let's go do the bourbon trail. It's not too far away. It's like five hours. It's a new hobby I've gotten into a lot more over the last year, thanks to my buddy TJ. And so we go up to Kentucky and we hit up eight different distilleries. And it was really cool getting to kind of step through different size distilleries, see their different processes. You know, there's also a lot of things that are in that area as far as if you are like a bourbon hunter that are super rare and that you can only get in this area. And so that was a lot of fun too, to get to buy some things that I've never even seen before in like a traditional liquor store. So that's what I did this weekend. How about you, Cody? Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe next time I come down, I'll have to partake a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was uh, more food than drink. So instead of bourbon, it was chicken. So there's this place called Wright's Chicken Farm. It's this place in Rhode Island. And basically their whole MO is you sit down, you pay, I think it's 17 bucks. You get unlimited chicken, pasta, salad, french fries and rolls and you basically just eat until you can't move so (laughs) that is precisely what i did so that was a ton of fun fried chicken or what kind of chicken are we talking it's like a whole chicken like it's kind of like a rotisserie chicken you'd get from a grocery store and they just keep bringing you as long as you know you clear the plates and it's way too much food it's always a lot of fun though it's it's a kind of a once a year experience even though i've been there twice this year so far Also, another update that I mentioned last week. So I mentioned that I was putting one of my properties on the market. And so it was listed last Wednesday, went under contract on Thursday. So that tells you the market is still pretty hot. I got exactly what I asked for it and no inspection, sight unseen. I actually kind of know the buyer. So it's an interesting situation, but he's well, he's way more equipped to handle the situation that's at that property. He's kind of just like tenants quarreling with each other. So I'm super pumped. It's kind of a win-win for everybody there. And we're going to be closing toward the end of January. So I know I was kind of nervous about the process. I said I'd keep you guys updated because I'd never sold a property before, but it's already under contract. So I'm already, you know, kind of halfway there. I'm kind of through the the hard part of the battle. Well, for those of us who just bought a house, it's nice to hear that the market is still hot, you know, didn't buy it the worst time ever. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's still heating up, especially in some areas of the country. But that's enough about us, Justin. Let's take a quick moment for our sponsor. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever, and I can definitely attest to this. So much time spent searching for, interviewing the wrong candidates, the wrong people to hire for a job opening that could be spent on growing your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it much easier to actually find candidates that are worth interviewing. So it's not just wasting your time. And the best part is that it's free. As someone who owns a couple small businesses, I can tell you how important it is to actually get that right team in place because once you start to outsource strategically, you can start to focus on the bigger picture stuff for your business. You can create a job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to find those perfect people to join your team. There's over 750 million people on the platform and there's candidates with every skill you can imagine and definitely one that can fit your wants and needs. Plus, with a company as big as LinkedIn, they do a really good job actually filtering through candidates and prioritizing who you'd like to interview, who you'd like to hire, and who's a good fit for your role. 
This is an opportunity to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash show. That's linkedin.com slash show to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Alrighty, so like I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the episode, today we have on Sarah King from Nerd's Guide to Fi. Sarah was someone who actually came from the Dave Ramsey background. So she learned all about you know, the basic money stuff through Dave Ramsey, that credit was bad, that, you know, having a credit score means you love being in debt. And now she's kind of gone full circle and she's a real estate investor now, which as many of you know, we were just talking about real estate before the commercial break. You definitely need credit to buy a property because the bank wants to know that you're going to pay them back. So we kind of talk about that whole mindset journey, that whole mindset shift that she had from being someone who thought all credit was bad to being a real estate investor and someone who was planning on retiring early via real estate. We also get into some of the nuances of her divorce and how owning rental properties with her ex-husband kind of became a little bit complicated and how to navigate that, making sure that all your deals are structured correctly. And we also get into how Sarah is actually rebuilding that empire after the divorce. Sarah definitely gives us a ton of information and is just a great open book. And, you know, she mentions on her about page that she hopes that people really resonate with her story. If you think that all bloggers don't have kids are crazy frugal or you know, tech engineering or just men like she's here to kind of dispel those myths. And if you want to check out some more of her materials or just have a handy link that you can share with your friends because you love the episode, you can do that at the show.com slash Sarah King. That's the show.com slash S-A-R-A-H King. Take it away, Sarah. So growing up is interesting and I don't talk about it a ton because I feel like I get all of the questions on like the payoff debt part. So if I hit my fire goals, I'll actually be second generation fire, which a lot of people don't know, which is pretty cool. So I grew up very like middle class America in a really small town and my dad owned his own business. And so him and my mom both worked in it. My mom quit when I was born and to raise me. And then my dad kept going. And then he actually retired and sold his company when I was in first grade. So I literally don't remember my parents working like hardly at all, which is a really weird experience. And so I don't know where I got like this crazy work ethic and work 24 seven because I didn't grow up in that environment. But they always talked about like they worked really hard in their business and they intended to like enjoy their retirement and like travel and do all these things. And so they're like, you may not get anything when we retire. We'll just see how it goes. And so they always said, like, you have to work. And like, if you want nice things, that comes from hard work. And so I had a job at 15. They drove me to. I got a, you know, I had a lot of things. Like, I guess when people like hit on the whole like privilege thing, like I had a lot of nice things. Like they, like I got a car, but it was like an old used car. I had no say in it. They're like, it arrived in the driveway and that's what you get. You know, I think it was huge and like, it was a Monte Carlo back in the day, like at 2007. And it was just a boat. Like, I feel like I could like get through snow that some trucks couldn't get through in Indiana winter. But I mean, I had a very like comfortable, very like normal, I feel like lifestyle because I feel like I was like decently well off in small town Indiana. And then I went to a big 10 like state school. So I went to Indiana University for college. And then I saw what pe- people like with money actually looked like. Like everyone has Ugg boots. My mom's like, how much are those? We're not buying you like these boots. And now it's like everyone seems to have them. So it was very interesting growing up with like very frugal parents. Like they didn't really spend on like clothes or anything, but they did have like houses in Indiana and Florida. So I guess like in retrospect, it was kind of weird. But at the time, like everyone vacationed to Florida in the winter. I just they had like an ownership piece of it because they were kind of real estate investors, I guess, in a way in that respect. Yeah, I just grew up kind of different, I guess I would say. But 
I knew like working all the time and not having work-life balance would be a big thing for me because I liked always having my parents there and having them at like every school event and that kind of stuff. We definitely had some good role models there because like, you know, not too many people have parents who are not working at, you know, when you're in the first grade, at least not by choice. Right. Right. So do you have any memories of maybe like what that did to kind of like shape your mind or was there any kind of weird things? Where it's like you look around and everybody else's parents are working. Cause like you said, they retired when you're in the first grade. So you really won't have any memory of them working or was there any like pushback as you started getting older and you're like 15 working? It's like, mom, dad, you don't even work. <laughs> Weirdly, no, because they were like, they always talked about like they built their businesses and they were done. My dad was always older, so he's currently like 82. So he's a lot older. And so he's like, I did my time. Like I worked until I was older, you know, like he kind of worked a full career. Like it was a little bit shortened, but nothing crazy. Like by fire standards, he'd be like a very old retiree, just kind of enjoyed it. But I didn't, it never struck me as weird. I've never really thought about it actually. So, but it's weird how that comes up because people are like, oh, that must have shaped you in some way. I'm like, I'm not really sure. I just knew like the type of lifestyle I wanted to have. And I liked the idea of free time and being able to take trips when I wanted to with my kids and doing that kind of stuff. So. So you start working at 15, you said. Landscaping. Landscaping. Okay. <laughs> landscaping. Right. Landscaping and staining decks. <laughs> <laughs> Respect. That's a, that's a hustly type of job at 15. It is. Yeah. Did you ever kind of adopt the mindset of, it sounds like your parents had to build something up and sell it for a huge profit, kind of like the Silicon Valley startup mindset where you're going to yeah. you know, retire with millions once you build up this thing. Was that kind of your ideology, your path as you, you know, move toward high school and college? Yeah, I think when I got into college, it was weird. It was weird. I think I first realized it was weird when I got into college and my parents said, like, they paid for my undergrad education, but they said, like, you will do four years and you'll be done and you need to find a job where, like, we had long talks about finding a job that was employable. And I just watched so many of my friends go to, like, private schools and my parents, like, we will not pay for that school. Like, they would let me look at private schools, but my mom would, like, literally shrieked in, like, one of these college tours where she's like please tell me that's like the whole four years (laughs) the price tag was just outrageous and I had friends whose parents worked all the time and were really busy and they were just choosing these colleges and doing whatever school they wanted because they thought the campus was pretty or they thought they'd have a really good connection with their faith which is also lovely but also at that price tag you know you can do the same kind of anywhere so I'm just like I just didn't understand like how people were spending so much on their schooling when that's such a small part of the picture. And so I was really cognizant about like what career path to choose. Like I remember sitting at my computer, like Googling like highest job placement rates because that was like 2008 was when I graduated high school. And that was like the crisis and everyone's like, there are no jobs. And I'm like, that's bullshit because I have to leave college and have a job. So I started Googling like top 10 jobs with career growth because I'm like, I'll just find something that's growing and pick something off this list. And that's how I kind of narrowed down my career focus, which is interesting. But I think them saying you might not have anything left, like you have to work for this. And it sounds like you like nice things. So you better find a good one. <laughs> so they're like you like shoes, you like, you know, whatever it is that you like in college and food and eating out. So you better find a good paying job. So that was kind of the they I guess we had a lot of talks about the type of lifestyle you want and needing to fund it, I guess. And I feel like a lot of my friends wanted the lifestyle, but didn't chose like elementary education where they weren't ever going to fund the level of spend they had. And then like, oh, crap, I'm really not satisfied in my teaching job. 
which I love teachers. I have best friends that is totally where they wanted to go. But I feel like a lot of people like end up settling into jobs that are like mediocre paying and their aspirations are a lot higher than what their income supports. And so I was really grateful for always having that conversation with them. And since you're both your parents worked like a family owned business, instead of going to college, was there ever a thought of like, let's dust, which dust off that family business. I know we never really talked about what that business was or just yeah. about be, becoming an entrepreneur in general without the college degree. It was always the college degree path, like always. My mom was an accountant, but like self-taught like accounting essentially. And then my dad was an engineer, but self-taught engineer. So he had like an apprenticeship back in the day. And so he did like injection molded car parts and designed like machines. And so I'm like, that's going to be a hard no for me. <laughs> so I'm like, I definitely like, I appreciate you guys, but I am not entrepreneur. Like I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur probably until like a few, I don't know, five, six years ago where I just had this like spirit, I guess, where it was really you just kind of gravitated toward it. But I didn't really think of myself that way for a while which is interesting because I think it was always there because my mom's like you and your dad both thrive in just straight chaos and it stresses her out because she's like the accounting mindset and we both like to have 37 irons in the fire at all times. And so I think I did get that piece from it for sure. But I never wanted to go into like the family business. I had to figure out my own. And I was like, crap, I'm really not creative. So that's kind of where index funds came in at first. And then I made my way slowly to real estate because I'm like, I'm not going to build this like multi-million dollar business and sell it because I just feel like I'm not gonna like I'm not an inventor but I need to figure out some way to essentially do the same thing so if my research is accurate you ended up getting a degree in genetic counseling I guess first just what is that I have never heard yeah. of that career field before yeah so I have two master's degrees so I did my master's in genetic counseling right after college and then when i was at a hospital employed i figured out they would do tuition reimbursement and so i searched online for mbas that were the same cost as how much they would reimburse for tuition and so i ended up doing my mba for free which is awesome um so i have my mba also and did like self-paced but again it's like they give you a deadline and they're like it's self-paced usually it takes two years but you could finish it in one and I knew if I finished it in one, I would be fully paid for. So I like knocked that out and hibernated and didn't do anything else for a year. Yeah. So anyway, but genetic counseling is essentially you counsel people on kind of their genetic history. So I've done high risk pregnancy before I've done oncology. Right now I'm doing like rare diseases. So it's like, I feel like oncology is the easiest one to understand. So a lot of people like if you have family history of breast or colon cancer or some kind of cancer and you're like, you know, you have a heart condition that runs in your family and you just want to talk to someone about that. I'm that person to talk to, to be like, what are my risks? What are my chances? How do I prevent this? That kind of thing. So it's a lot of like, hopefully you can do something about it if you have awareness and do different screenings to hopefully not have these conditions that are impacting your other relatives. And if you do, then figuring out how to like live with it and get support and all of that stuff. Which like, obviously this is a, you know, personal finance <laughs> show and not necessarily just a medical <laughs> show, but it's very interesting because I've never heard of this, this kind of career field. And you started touching on it there, which is kind of the what can you do about it? Because that's the first thing that came to my mind is like, yeah. genetics are what genetics are. You can't really go back in time and change them. Um, do you, did you also kind of deal with people who maybe had to make a decision on whether or not they should have children because they may have something they could pass down? Because yeah. we talk a lot about, you know, like what legacy we want to leave behind with this in the, in the fire movement and what kind of like nest egg we leave behind for our children. That could be like a scary thing, like thinking what might you hand down to your children that's, that's not a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a hard conversation. Usually families are 
relieved to know the odds are lower than they thought they were going to be. Like, I feel like that's way more common. Like, people tend to imagine, like, the worst case scenario. But I've definitely had hard conversations where it is that condition that they hope to not have and their baby has that. I've been in that position before. So, I mean, it's just hard conversations where essentially your job is to come alongside your family and figure out what their values are and kind of appropriately walk them through based on their values. So if they want to go one route or another, you just kind of take them through that walk and get them support for whatever direction they need and hopefully give them the most information to make the best choice for them. So lots of hard conversations. I think in, you know, in the pediatric space, it's a little sadder, I think, than oncology and kind of because there's a lot like preventative things you can do in like the cancer field. And there's so many different treatment options nowadays. There's a lot more tools, but some fields are particularly hard hard days at work. It's, you know, it takes a lot of like emotional strength, I think, to not take that home some days. So yeah, not to take this totally in a depressing <laughs> tone, but you're usually like not excited to go see the genetics person though. So unless you're talking about like ancestry testing and then people have fun with that. But even that's kind of, you know, it's hard to not take a different tone with genetics because usually it's medical conditions people are wanting to see people about. Well, appreciate you sharing. Yeah. <laughs> I knew nothing, and I don't think Justin knew anything about genetic counseling, and now us and all of our lovely listeners do. Yeah. I do want to pull from a quote, and I'll give some context. There's a quote I read on your blog. So genetic counseling, of course, there's hard conversations, but it seems like every day at the office is different. You have a really rewarding job, like you're impacting people's lives directly. This is the quote. Being satisfied in your job is a mindset issue. This is something I read on your website. I'd love for you to comment yeah. on that. And just expand on what that means, especially as someone, you know, in a role like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think life, I, I always say like life gives you many options to be bitter about things and just like beats you up. Like things will happen. I've just been through like a really hard season in life in general lately. And so I just feel like you can choose to be bitter and down and angry about that situation. Or you can like wake up every day and be like, I'm going to do this. It's interesting that that was my quote because I'm like, I've always loved my job and now I'm in this like terrible corporate job at the moment. And I totally battle with myself every day because I'm like, is this a mindset thing? You just have a bad mentality about this job or is it actually that bad? And so I'm just trying to figure that out because I've seen a lot of people where it's common to complain. I think that's a lot of our culture today is just everyone hates their job. Hating your job is normal. You know, you need to get out of it is, you know, the only way. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about focusing on getting your income up and trying to help yourself out in that respect, where people tend to talk about just saving money kind of in the fire movement. They don't really talk about the income side of the equation. And so I've kind of tried to challenge that a little bit myself and get that income up. But, you know, I have landed in what I consider like a a borderline toxic kind of work environment now where I'm getting emails from people like out on PTO and people are working on vacation. And I'm like, okay, this might not totally be a mindset thing. So maybe I need to go back and revise my own quote because I totally believe this. <laughs> and then I'm now, I'm like, I am that job that people talk about. But I do think like my hospital jobs, people just get in this mentality and they're just like down and they kind of bring everyone else down. And it's really hard to be the person that comes in and is like excited to be at work every day and to kind of be the person that picks everybody up or the person that just like, you won't let those conversations bring you down to kind of disengage from that kind of mentality. I think it's pretty rampant in culture today. So I don't know if I totally believe my own quote. 98%, 2% me just needing to stop whining about corporate America. <laughs> One thing I'm curious if you've kind of thought about as you've done this introspection is obviously like you're in a different job now. You're in this corporate job now that you're kind of struggling with, you know, finding that happiness in. 
but it's also a little bit deeper in your journey. And I know for me, like the clearer that that finish line becomes where it's like, oh, I actually could quit my job. The harder it is to like stay in there with that job, the more like you think about like, oh, gosh, just quit because, you know, you can. It's like hope can actually be a little dangerous there. I wonder if that's something you've thought about um, as, as you've kind of, you know, introspectively thought about being able to find happiness and choosing to be happy is, is it a little dangerous to know that you can retire because then you kind of dwell on it? Yeah. I've never thought about that, but kind of, because I, I truly believe if I just like didn't have this nine to five job, I could totally be like making a huge impact with my like online business and doing like nerds guide FI full time. Cause I'm watching accounts that are, you know, haven't been around as long as mine and they're just growing exponentially. And some of them are quitting their jobs. And I'm like, I've been around longer. What the heck am I doing with my life? And they're like building these eBooks and courses that I'm like, if I could just, you know, walk away from my day job and just focus on this, could I be doing the same thing and have this like independent lifestyle? Probably. And I think that's like part of the dissatisfaction I'm feeling right now is I feel like I can't, like I need to do one or the other. It feels like right now because the day job is just so time consuming. I don't feel like I have enough bandwidth to do the rest, like and do it as well as I want it to be done. So I think that's definitely part of it because I'm like, should I just like up and quit this job? But then I remind myself that I'm overpaid and <laughs> I'm a single income household and I need to lock it up. <laughs> but I think also I'm not quite where I want to be with real estate and it's much easier to buy real estate with the W2 job. So keeping it around for a while, but I had to get the mindset. So I have a business coach and she's like, you need to stop looking at your job as like a job and think about it as like your investor. Like this is by far the best investor you have in your business that you think is your priority. And so that like mindset switch has helped a little bit to be like, okay, could I put up with this investor for the next four years? Like that's doable. But again, just getting in your own thought process of, you know, could I just up and quit someday soon? Maybe, maybe it'll get harder as I go on. So, so not that long ago, I mean, we're talking five or six years. This wasn't even a reality to you. And you kind of hinted at it earlier talking about budgeting and kind of discovering this whole world and starting with Ramsey and going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. But I know that's a really loaded question and you can kind of take it in any direction that you want, but would love to hear like part of that journey, especially the mindset shift part. Right. So we just took out a ton of debt. So I was married that, or I was just freshly married then. And we just took out a ton of debt together. So we had cars financed, a motorcycle financed, truck and an SUV. You know, I think we were just living like the middle class dream. Where you have like a small boat and a motorcycle, like all the like we had all these toys, I like to call them, and just were totally consumers and overspent our means by far. And so just like reining that in, I feel like I just needed an easy path because we were almost a hundred thousand in debt and we did pay off 118 by the time we were done. Piece of interest and all that fun stuff. Essentially, you're just like, oh, crap, I have to get out of this. And at that point, you kind of need just like an easy button to like trudge yourself out because you, you just get into debt so quickly. It's very easy to just sign up for debt, especially when you have a really good credit score. And so I think that's kind of the start of the journey. And then digging out of that in two years and then kind of coming up for air after you've lived in the scarcity mindset for so long. And you have to kind of rewire your brain, especially when you think about real estate, because Dave Ramsey like beats any creativity out of you and any <laughs> desire to like use debt and credit cards are scary and all debt is scary and it's really not. And just figuring out like where you belong in the world is something I think was really hard. Like you feel a little lost after you finish. You're like, oh, I paid off all debt. My life is gonna be amazing now. And I just felt totally like in the middle of a river with no paddle. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> 
But clearly this is not like going back to spending all this money just mindlessly is not the answer. Like blowing 50% of our income is not going to be what we do now that we're done with debt. So what do we do with this savings rate? Well, could you tactically walk us through a little bit on how you paid that debt off? I mean, was it things like with the cars, did you like fully pay them off or did you kind of like sell them and get a used car? Like, you know, was it $118,000 worth of cash you had to come up with or did you offload some things? So we did a little bit of both. So the first year, I like to say that I just like we did Dave Ramsey, but I essentially did Dave Ramsey party of one. Um, so I worked my full time day job and then I waitressed every night and paid off my Jeep Grand Cherokee. I bought myself because I was determined that I would be keeping my car because I'm a car person. And so the idea of selling it was ridiculous that I just didn't want to do it. And so I gave myself a goal of like paying it off in a year. And I just waitressed all the time. Like I would drive on this highway on cruise from my day job to my waitressing job and change clothes on the way, much to my mom's dismay, like driving on the highway, like how I'm still alive. I don't know. But I would like literally, I'm like, if I get pulled over, like someone's gonna be like, ma'am, why don't you have pants on? But yeah, like I waitressed all the time and paid off my Jeep Grand Cherokee I bought. We bought it used, so we bought it air quotes smart, I guess. It was a 2016, it was pretty close to new. And so it was like a year and a half or two years old. And then the truck we had, we know we didn't want to keep. And so we paid that down until it was no longer underwater. And then we traded that in on a affordable, like a more affordable used car. So we actually took out another vehicle payment, but a lesser vehicle payment, about half of that. And then that cleared out a chunk of cash. And then we had another vehicle that wasn't financed and we sold that. So I was convinced like the husband then to sell one of his like trucks that he had that was paid off and that cleared up a chunk of debt also. And so it was a lot of like selling stuff at the end, but a lot of like me just waitressing all the time and then just trying to save up as much as we could. But we definitely weren't like great at it. Like we still took vacations. We still like did a bunch of like life things. Like we still traveled and did some fun stuff along the way. But a lot of it was hustle. A lot of it was like, I think 20 or $30,000 came from like selling stuff. Well, hey, 118000 is nothing to scoff at in less than two years. That's crazy. Yeah. When you do discover the FIRE movement, though, you kind of had Ramsey to figure out how to rein in your spending, how to get out of debt, probably use some of these different budgeting techniques and tactics and you know, debt snowball or debt avalanche your way out. But yeah. what did the FIRE movement kind of introduce that you were missing before? Was it the notion that you could retire early? Was it side hustling? I guess I'm just I'm wondering what that kind of light switch moment was for you. About halfway through i was like okay well we sold all the crap that we can sell and i literally can't work anymore that i'm currently working without dying and so what else is next because it was kind of a set trajectory from there like i could see the plan this is what like i could see i'm like okay in like eight months we're gonna have this all paid off so what's next because we had about a 50 percent savings rate then and I'm like well i'm not just gonna like waste this and i just started reading books and did like the quintessential like actually it was Scott Trench's Set for Life that I read that I thought was really, really interesting because it's, again, picked on cars, but it talked a lot about more like house hacking and hacking your income and kind of these other areas because being super frugal didn't appeal to me very much because I'm just not a very frugal person and I just know this about myself. That's kind of why I'm on this, like, like I'm definitely, it would be the more fat fire camp out of everything just because that's kind of what I signed up for in the beginning anyway. That was just not going to be part of the journey. And so... Yeah, I started, I read um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is, I think, everyone's book, um, Millionaire Next Door, 
Um, and then the simple path to wealth is like the Bible of like index funds. I read that. I'm like, sweet. I know how to invest in index funds. I did that all in all of my accounts and then I'm done now. And then it was like, okay, well now what after index funds? Like, I feel like you read the simple path to wealth, you get it. You're like, I believe in this. I'm good with this. I'm good with set and forget. I'm good with hundred percent stock allocation. And so now what? Because now I still have all this money. I don't want to chuck any more into savings accounts. And so I want something tangible and real estate was that answer to I'm bored, how do I do it faster? <laughs> Which I think is the story of my life. Like I'm very impatient and it's served me pretty well, <laughs> so. Well, since you weren't really trying to do that bare bones, frugal type way to get to FI, which a lot of times that's where people kind of struggle with the adoption, the lifestyle change. Was there anything about this transition that was really difficult or was it all just fairly kind of straightforward and it just, you know, took your time? I mean, we definitely hustled. Like I worked all the time. So there were times where with my two degrees that I would make more waitressing in a week that I would make it my day job which is kind of embarrassing at the time. And then just focusing on getting income up. Honestly, I mean, like we're somewhat for like, I still to this day, keep a budget. Like I still use like every dollar, like Dave Ramsey's budgeting app. And I track my spending. Like I'm very mindful about my spending, but I tend to overspend every single month. Like every month I adjust every month. I'm like, oh shit, did I need another pair of leggings from Lululemon? I did not. But that's like very anti common in like the fire space. Like people aren't as spendy as probably I am, but I just knew that's kind of me and I tried to fight it a long time. So I try to kind of like beat that out of myself through Dave Ramsey and like getting really frugal and couponing and shopping at only at Aldi and doing different grocery stores. And at some point I'm like, I feel like I'm just fighting my like who I am as a person and this isn't for me and I can do it in a way that brings me a lot more joy than constantly feeling like you're at this deficit. Like some people can live in deficit for a really long time. I feel like the entrepreneurial side, like I kind of rebel against it a little bit, <laughs> which is why I should be doing something else ambitious with my time. <laughs> I think you are pretty ambitious, though. Something I noted when I was just checking out your Instagram in preparation for this conversation was a lot of these properties that you've picked up. Maybe we can just pick one in particular. Maybe you can choose the one that was most exciting. A lot of them are fixer uppers and it looks like you're doing a lot of the work yourself. Like I saw a picture of you with like a drill in your hand, redoing yeah. flooring, like all this different stuff. I mean, that's a scary thing. And that's one of the things that probably deters a lot of people from real estate is that is the physical aspect. Like, it's not like an index fund where, you know, someone can't it can't get set on fire or someone can't be the worst tenant in the world. I'm not super handy, but I've learned some things along the way where I'm like now, like my mom said, like, as I she's like, are you going to tell people that you're like dating, like that you have a tool problem? <laughs> like maybe <laughs> an addict on like doing like little remodel projects. Like I'm really good at painting kitchen cabinets, but it's really time consuming. And so I've gotten handier as I went on, but I was zero percent handy. Like my parents hired everything out when I was growing up and they never really did anything themselves. And so Kind of the interesting thing for those of you who may not know me is so me and the husband that I had bought five properties together and then we sold all of them in 2021 because we went through a divorce. And so now I'm investing totally by myself and I want to keep doing real estate, but I'm not handy. Like I'm not about to lay floors. I can do I can paint really well. I can do kitchen cabinets. I can hang some stuff. I'm really handy with like a screw gun. So like blinds like I can hang blinds. Um, and I can actually do some drywall repair, but beyond that, like, I'm not about to like install a new garbage disposal or fix like my own toilet or anything. So I've been having to build systems out and I feel like I learned this mostly from Paula Pant actually, because she was the first one that talked about 
So that's kind of really when I got into the real estate and thought, actually, I'm going to give this a go was from Paula because she's not handy. She invests out of state and she doesn't work on them herself. And as someone who used to be zero percent handy, but is like acquired skills through like sheer luck. Yeah, I, I just was really inspired by her, like going out, like fearlessly and going after properties without having this handiness. And so what I really learned is that it makes you build a business and it makes you build systems to not work on it. So I have a plumbing guy. I have an electric guy. I have, you know, I have my HVAC contract, like contractors. Like I have people now to do all these roles. And so my goal is to not ever paint a house again right now because I've painted about six of them and I'm kind of done Um, because I've painted like the full interior of several houses and you just get a little burnout. So, yeah. So I post like flooring pictures and before and afters, but now I'm no longer doing any of that myself. So it's a little spendier because my ex-husband was really talented at remodeling. And so he would just like slay these renovations, but it was never done as fast as I wanted to go. So the benefit right now is I'm getting like remodels done in two weeks with my amazing contractor team because a crew of guys comes in and like knocks it out. The downside is it costs more for the speed. So there's pros and cons to both. But I think in order to like scale up in the next few years, I'll be grateful that I contract everything out. So I guess for people that are afraid, if you have your own house, you call people if you need things done. And so you're just kind of like 10xing that in a way when you start buying real estate. It's like, okay, now I have two toilets to repair, but I can still use the same plumber I have. And you can find those people in other markets. Like you have Yellow Pages, you have Google, you have websites. Like I can do that out of state too. Like you just try a plumber, like even locally, I can try a plumber. They sound great online and they don't show up. And you're like, what the hell, buddy? You sounded great online. But I mean, you're going to find that whether you're in state or out of state. So I think a lot of it is just like self-limiting beliefs, which I totally have as well. But I'm working on them where you can solve real estate's a giant like problem solving puzzle to do is what I've kind of figured out. You just need to be able to find people that can fix the things you don't know how to fix. So well, you talked about having the five properties, but then selling them all in 2021. And we've seen a lot of that where a lot of people are offloading properties this time or, you know, here in 2021 because values have risen so much. But then you're making some comments about, you know, now I'm getting these renovations done quickly. So it sounds like have you, you purchased some in 2021 and what's that been like? Yeah. So previously with the properties, we mostly use conventional mortgages to buy them. And then in 2020, I bought my house hacks. I'm house hacking right now. And I bought that with a private money lender. And then in the spring of 2021, I refinance that in my personal name. So like I currently own my house hack. And then I bought a duplex of private money. So the same private money lender, I got them to lend on the duplex. Um, so that's my so now I have my basement rental unit from my house hack and then this duplex. And then I have an offer in on another one that's an accepted offer. So I'm under contract for a second duplex that I'm going to buy, hopefully, you know, in December and then have I'll have depends how you calculate it like I feel like I technically have five doors like I'll have five tenants but some people say six doors and count their own house hack unit because I do plan to move out of this house eventually and buy another one so I either have five or six units by the end of 2021 after having zero for a minute so it's very exciting so I think an interesting spin that you have on not only real estate, but financial independence, you can take this question in either direction, but your blog, your brand is Nerd's Guide Defy. And so you're really numbers driven. I know you have like an Excel spreadsheet that you sell. I've seen a bunch of your Excel spreadsheets, very impressive by the way. But what are what are some of the numbers or just some of the calculations that people are often overlooking? And again, this could be in real estate or financial independence or elsewhere. Yeah, I think newbies always 
my mortgage covers the rent, so I'm good. And that's like a terrible way to run numbers in real estate. So just like that mentality is they'll be like, okay, you know, mortgage is a thousand dollars, rents a thousand two hundred, my cash flow is two hundred dollars. And you're like, no, no, <laughs> no, your cash flow negative. I know nothing else, but I just know you're not making money. And so I think just taking time to learn how to run the numbers. I learned a lot of what I do now based on like Coach Carson. I think he does a really good job of teaching it for anyone that wants to check him out. Um, if you want a spreadsheet, it's kind of a knockoff between what Coach Carson does and what the Bigger Pockets calculators do, honestly, because I'm cheap and refuse to pay for the pro Bigger Pockets membership. So a little frugal in there. Like I don't like to pay for like I just will build my own spreadsheets and things out. But anyway, so I think the big thing is I still always look at the 1% rule to just see like is 1% of, you know, the cost of the property and the renovation of the property going to be your rent amount, like 1% of that. Um, Just as a quick rule of thumb, because you probably are cash flowing if that's the case. And then I have a full spreadsheet I run under and you set aside a lot of money for costs that people don't think about. They just worry about mortgage. You know, you have taxes and insurance, which I think people usually figure out you have mortgage taxes and insurance, but they forget about the other stuff like vacancy, which I usually do about 5% uh, management, which is, you know, you can check your area, but mine's like eight to 10% in our area. Usually 10 is standard for if you hire a property manager Um, and then doing your CapEx, which is about 5%, which is capital expenditures, which is going to be like your big high dollar items. Like, do you need a new roof? Do you need a new furnace? Do you need a new water heater? So all of your big, like big money spend items, you set aside a little bit every month to someday replace your roof because you don't want to be the landlord that's like, oh, crap, I need a new roof and I don't have any money for that. You want to be like saving for these big items over time. And I have a whole like spreadsheet that like calculates it based on the age of each item, too, which is kind of fun. Um, So you can actually see if you're accurately setting aside money for CapEx, but then people just throw a percentage at it and stick it at 5%. But I actually have like an advanced like CapEx thing I made myself where you enter like if the furnace is from 2020, you need to set aside a lot less money than if the furnace was from 1980. So <laughs> very different furnace amounts that you need to be setting aside. And so you can kind of roughly calculate from there. Um, and then just maintenance of the property about 10%. So essentially 30% costs is just set aside in money saving for when things go wrong or when vacancy comes up or essentially life. Like you own properties like stuff breaks. That's what happens. I think just signing up for that in the beginning but those key expenses will be your big thing to get your cash flow numbers figured out but i mostly just pay attention to cash flow numbers i do know my cap rate now but that's just because i've been investing in the same area for a while so now i know what a good cap rate is um but it's very like market specific so a lot of people don't put a lot of value in that but i think it's because it's hard to teach people Mm -hmm. have a hard time understanding a cap rate and it's like very local because in my area i can get like an eight to 10% cap in a good neighborhood and don't have shootings happening. But in other cities, that would be impossible to find a 10% cap rate without someone getting like shot next door. And so people have a hesitancy to really talk about like what kind of common cap rates they're getting. But I think like Coach Carson and Paula Pant will talk about what they get on theirs, which is helpful. So, you know, I don't love cash on cash return. It's on the spreadsheet that I have, but I check it just for funsies. But it's kind of ridiculous because I tend to buy my houses in any way possible to make the deal happen, whether that's private money. And I usually fund the 100% of the deal with private money. So then my cash on cash returns like infinite, right? Like I just bought a house with no money, YOLO. And so my cash on cash return is phenomenal. And then I usually <laughs> refi after a while. And then it looks terrible because I pulled my money back out of it. So 
I don't put a lot of weight on that because it just looks better depending on how you leverage it. And process, what's the, what's the best deal so far? <laughs> oh, my best deal I found on Facebook Marketplace by oh. far. <laughs> Actually, my best two deals I've ever found have been on Facebook. So just like on Facebook Marketplace, like people listing, I have a property for sale. So there's really been two of them. So one of them is a land deal. So we bought 22 acres for $110,000. And that was so roughly, I don't know, math, tell you what. So yeah, so we bought 110,000 was 22 acres, if I can do this. And then we sold, so around like, yeah. So, and eventually we sold that property and we doubled our money on that. So I think we had like a 97% return. Like we sold it for (laughs) 205 or 208, I think is what we finally sold that for when we sold it. So, um, and we only bought that in 2019. So essentially, we just like doubled our money and flipped a piece of land and didn't really mean to do that. Like that was kind of a buy and hold kind of like investment, like long term. We'll figure out something to do with it later, but it's such a good deal on land and land's really going up in our area. So that was probably my best purchase ever. But the numbers aren't very exciting. It's not a rental property. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Let's do one with real numbers. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. so bought a rental property off of Facebook again. Um, It was sixty four thousand dollars. And so we ended up using a portfolio loan on this one. And so this is kind of another niche I talk about a lot. So essentially, we had two other properties and we had a little bit of equity in each of them from doing remodels and getting rents up. And so we talked to a small local lender that would do portfolio loans, which are a type of commercial loan for people that don't know that. And so in a first, people think commercial loans are scary or you can't do them on single family homes, but essentially you're doing it in the name of your business. And so since we had two years of tax returns, which is why I always tell people, like, make your LLC early because someday you may need your LLC to have established tax documents. And so this is why, because I accidentally had two years of tax documents that could actually leverage our business credit. And so essentially we went with the portfolio loan lender and they said if we refinanced the $64,000 house and we refied the two with them, they would bundle the three together in one loan and they just needed an 80% down loan to value on all three. And so we're able to tap the equity in the two that we had built up a little bit to actually purchase the third one. And so we had to put like, I think $13,000 into that deal to buy the $64,000 house. And so it essentially cut how much down payment we needed in about half. And so we were able to refi all of them on like a fixed, I think it was a five in one arm, um, which adjusted like every five years for 20 years. Um, But which I didn't love. But at the time, I'm like, I just want to buy this house and I don't have money. So here we go. Let's figure it out. That's how you know you've gone to the dark side of real estate. (laughs) And so, yeah, so $64,000 bought it for 13,000 roughly of our own money out of pocket. And then it rented for 985 a month. So that's probably my biggest like home run deal out of all of them. Was it pretty rent ready or did you have to do a good bit of work on it? Um, There was the roof was new. The water heater was new. The furnace was new ish. Um, So it was a lot of cosmetic work like it needed some drywall work done. It had been it had been a rental prior to when we bought it. And so it was just severely neglected. Like the cabinets were covered with like a thick layer of grease. And I don't know if the people like made candy in their spare time, but there was like the spattering of like colorful, like runny dots on everything. Like, I don't know if they have like a candy factory. I don't know if they're making like edibles. Like, I don't know where it is in Michigan. Like I'm not here to like judge you and what the heck you're making in your kitchen. But there was like splattering of like green and pink, like colors everywhere in the kitchen. So it was more just like degreasing and cleaning out everything. And then 
we did a little bit of work, like change out like doorknobs that were really old. Like they must have had a dog and it chewed on all the doorknobs. And so they were like spiky and pointy. So when you turn them, it like hurt your hand because the dog used them as a chew toy. Like I have no idea. And then the bathroom was floor to ceiling pink. And we actually epoxied the whole bathroom. It was like every single wall was tile. And I epoxied the whole thing myself. So that is, I bought it off of Amazon. It sounded great. And I about fumigated myself. Like they were really <laughs> serious when you, they say like fumes are prominent and you should open windows. Like I started driving afterwards and I was like, I should not be driving. And I stopped at like a McDonald's parking lot and just like sat there and like breathed fresh air for a little bit. <laughs> so hey, they really you mean made it. yourself out to be Sarah. You're saying you weren't I mean, handy. It turns you out. Epoxied a whole bathroom. So it sounded yeah. like it was only a couple grand, though, maybe, if that, in rental costs? I think it ended up being, like, maybe five. Like, it was not very much, like, three to five. We ended up doing, like, some random things that I don't think we needed to be doing in there. But I, like, repainted all the kitchen cabinets, epo- epoxied the bathroom, and we had all the walls painted. It was, like, avocado green with, a hot, like, a light pink bathroom, so it needed it. Floor to ceiling. So lots it's of It's always amazing work. the decisions that people make somewhere <laughs> oh, in the past. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. New appliances, that was the other thing, because they were really old and outdated and, like, missing, like, knobs and stuff. So that was probably the biggest cost of the, like, 5000 we put in was a new fridge, new gas stove. Well, I don't have the yeah. capacity or mental wherewithal to do a cap rate, but using the numbers, it's, like, what, 985 over, like, 73 or something? What is that, like, 1.3 something percent rule <laughs> if we're using the one percent rule because that's a lot easier math than calculating a cap rate <laughs> exactly i think it was a 10 cap a 10 or 11 cap rate and then i don't know what my cash and cash return is but i know it cash flowed like almost 400 dollars a month after everything which like michigan taxes are really expensive so that kind of cut into like how awesome it'd be if i bought the same house in indiana it would have been a little bit better Still a good deal. So that was kind of my good like i aimed for like 200 cash flow a door so that was a good one especially since we you know, finance it with essentially putting very little money into it. So we were happy in the end of the day. So that's probably my best purchase. The rest have all been off the MLS. So those are my two Facebook buys. So don't like sleep on Facebook marketplaces having great real estate deals. <laughs> Gotta say, I don't think we've had one person recommend Facebook marketplace that we've had on of the dozens of real estate guests. So we'll definitely point people toward that resource. <laughs> it's not quite as good as it used to be, but if you can find them on there, but I always like, I'm like, I'm not trying to do like 10 deals a month. I'm trying to do like three or four a year. And so, you know, keep an eye on it and see what it's going on. Like I literally keep Facebook around for like my grandma and my mom and real estate deals. <laughs> so just check it every once in a while, see what's for sale. So there's one thing I have to bring up just because only people in the Fi space, the real estate space will understand. And it's super ironic, but only if you're in this space, Sarah, you met Paula Pant with no pants on i literally did <laughs> i'm so glad we're talking about this because i'm like this is a great conversation starter <laughs> yeah so it was funny so my whole goal of fincon was just to meet all these amazing people i know online and we've networked over the years and talked about deals and fire and kind of our goals and aspirations and so paul and i've always connected because i feel like our goals were kind of similar she's obviously significantly more frugal than i am and lives like a significantly more nomadic lifestyle but goal wise it was always really similar where it was refreshing to me to read her content because she didn't want a million rental properties. She wanted, you know, a reasonable amount to get her the lifestyle she wanted. And that was kind of more up my alley because I'm not chasing door count. I'm chasing 
like life freedom. And so that was just not something I ever wanted to do. And I feel like she was one of the few people in the space that was like preaching the small and mighty portfolio. And I'm like, this girl knows what she's talking about. Let's chat. And so we'd been talking like on and off, like here and there a little bit. And so we had never met before. And so we were at FinCon this year and I was really bummed. Like it was my last day there. We were about to leave on an airplane and I hadn't met her yet. I'm like, I literally told my the girl I was staying with, I'm like, oh, my only person I didn't meet that I really wanted to is Paula Pant. And we saw her when she was running to go MC like the whole event and we missed her. And so I was just like really bummed because I didn't want to hold her up because I'm also perpetually late. And apparently Paula is also perpetually late. So I feel like she's kind of my spirit animal. Um, and so... I was at the pool with my like roomies and I was running downstairs to meet a couple other girls that were at the conference. So Sarah Weaver and um, oh, who else was I meeting? Anyway, ran down the elevator and I just like threw a T-shirt on because and it was ironically like an um, VTSAX and chill shirt. Like I didn't I was going to wear it at the conference, but I never did. So I was like ironically wearing like a pretty decent financial shirt and then i was like i'm just gonna forget pants because i kind of got wet sitting by the pool and i'm like i'm just gonna run downstairs all i have to do is like let them on the elevator i figured they'd be ready but no they're like down the lobby talking to people so like have to walk through the lobby i'm like super awkward and of course like the one and only time i get to meet paula pant and sarah's like you have to go say hi to her i'm like this is so embarrassing you have no idea like why of all days did i choose to like all my stuff is packed in a suitcase because I'm ready to get on a plane and my pants are wet. And so I'm just like in a bathing suit meeting Paula Pant, who's like my hero in life. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was like, hi, my name is Sarah and I have no pants because I'm really awkward. <laughs> it was a good memory. I think we'll remember each other. I'm like, well, you probably met a ton of people during, you know, this whole FinCon experience. Um, did you meet anyone else without pants on? I feel like this is memorable. You're welcome. <laughs> So it was a pretty fun meeting and we posted a lot about it and it was kind of fantastic. So I actually feel like it couldn't have gone any better. One of the things like one of my mentors at my previous job said, like, always be known for something like I don't really want to be known for like something terrible. But obviously, like. You're the girl without pants like that, like she'll remember me if we ever see each other again. So nailed it. <laughs> Might not be the move for every person you meet, but that's a great way to meet Paula Pam. That's definitely one you won't forget. Right. Yeah. So it was fantastic. I was extremely mortified because it's super not me. Like, I feel like I dress like a nun most of the time. So like a somewhat scandalous bathing suit was not really what I hoped for. <laughs> so. Well, the one thing we haven't talked about that I just want to see, like, maybe you've got some advice for people in that same boat, because we don't have a lot of guests on who are a single mom. And so yeah. just curious for people who are in that same position or maybe even talking about like how it's changed the way you imagine things will go from here on out, uh, or maybe even just like preparing for the future because you never know when you might become a single mom or single parent. Right. Yeah. So I think like a year and a half ago, so it's like, it was 2019. So about September of 2019, my whole like world flipped. And so didn't expect to become a single mom, didn't think I was ever gonna be divorced, but here we are. And so, you know, it changes your perspective a lot. I feel like I've become like a better person through it. Like I'm just calmer. I roll with things a lot better. I mean, don't recommend it, but it's been <laughs> pretty good in the end. But it's really hard and it makes you be really mindful about how you build out your systems because there's so much you can't do when you have a toddler full time with you. And so my daughter is two and a half or almost two and a half. And so it changes how much you can go work on rentals. Like I can't just like, I'm going to put you to bed and go like, run a half hour away and go work on a rental property like I can't just like leave her and go do stuff like you have to even if she's sleeping you need to be home and like 
there's just a whole different level of coordination with like babysitters. And so it made me develop better systems. It made me be more mindful about like money as well. And just like saving a bit more, um, which I'm doing a terrible job at because every time I save up money, I throw it back into real estate. <laughs> I'm a terrible saver, but it goes into a good place. I think like at least I'm investing in. But I think it really changes that and it grounds you because I think it's amazing having kids because they're just such a little beacon of light and so happy and just like seeing everything through their eyes. Like everything's more fun, like holidays and Christmas and Thanksgiving. Like it's just so much fun with littles. So but it is a lot of work when you're trying to like build a business. And so I think you do have to prioritize and be like more mindful of your time. Like I really put myself on a strict like wake up, go to bed schedule. And I had to almost give myself like me a bedtime as well because I'm a night owl and I'll just stay up and not sleep. And you can't just like not sleep for days and like have a full time job and do all this stuff where your brain just like melts. So I think it makes you build different systems. And then also keep in mind, like for me, I don't like to do a lot of partnerships because I've seen a partnership go really wrong. And so I guess if people ever have questions about why not to do a partnership, I have a good track record of saying like when you're you know, your partner in crime suddenly is unavailable and kind of like ghosts like life in a way and just like isn't showing up on the job and isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing and kind of goes rogue and you're stuck with like rentals and managing them all on your own. It's hard and you just have to figure that out. So I'm always like very leery of partnerships and how they're structured now. So I guess I'm always like the critic in the audience being like, how do you really feel about partnerships? (laughs) Because you just really never know. Um, but again, like you don't know anything in life, like no day is ever guaranteed. So you can't always live in fear. So I'm hoping to get away from my fear of partnerships because I'm like anything in life could go wrong. Like I could be disabled tomorrow. Like there's so many different things that come up and you just don't expect it. You can develop a medical condition. Like there's just things happen and life happens. So I think just adapting and trying to figure out like how you can do the business anyway, if it's like what you're passionate about. That was a really long, wordy answer. Yeah. Hey, the more the merrier. We, we, that's why we like doing this. But you definitely have a lot to share. You have a ton of experience in a ton of different arenas from single mom to partnerships to real estate to index funds to going from Ramsey to fire. And I know you've just been posting a ton of content on Instagram. You've been rebranding your site. You've been on TikTok. Where are some of the best places, just handles, websites that people can connect with you? By far on Instagram. Instagram is like my love in life. So Nerds Guide to Fi or FI. And then... My website's under the same name, so links in my Instagram bio if you want to start there. I'm on Facebook, but I really never check it. I think I push all my podcasts out to Facebook also when they go live, so I do have a podcast under the same name, so I kind of branded everything the same name to keep it simple. Also, the whole not being creative thing is real, so like my the most creative thing about what I'm doing is my name, and then I just use that for everything, so... Yeah, but I'm not on Twitter. I just got a TikTok. I'm neglecting it a lot, but they say it's easier to make TikToks and push to Instagram than make reels on Instagram and push to TikTok. But I'm so used to Instagram that like making reels is so much easier. So I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen with the TikTok, but I hear that's where I should be going. That's what all the people at FinCon are saying. But I feel like that's like an elder millennial thing is like, no, I just like Instagram. Don't like make me do more platforms. (laughs) So we'll see what happens with TikTok. But I do think it's a really cool space. I spend an exorbitant amount of time just like perusing it. So well, Sarah, we're excited to see where you take that. And we're so glad that you came on and gave us a little bit of your time and gave us your full background. I think we covered a ton in this episode and we think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. So thanks you for coming on the show. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to shoot me a DM on Instagram. I answer all of them. 
If you send me a really long DM, it might be weeks before I answer you, but I will answer you. There's just like a few in queue right now that I'm like, man, I really need to answer this guy back, but that's going to take like brain power. So I will get back with you at some point. And if I forget, just like poke me again. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. <laughs>